0: Let's turn our attention to, to God's Word this morning. And uh, as we do that, I do want to tell you that today's sermon is going to be a little different than what you've been accustomed to with me over the last two years. Normally what we do is we go through books of the Bible or sections of the books of the Bible, and we deal with one particular passage. We, 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 we attempt to interpret exactly what that passage means in its context and then apply it to the life of our body. But today what we're doing is we're, we're looking at more of a doctrinal, type, uh, doctrinal topic we're looking at something to do with the nature of the church in the New Testament. And so it's not just going to be one text that we're going to look at. It's going to be multiple texts that we're going to look at together. I, I would say it like this. It's, it's more of an overview or a New Testament theology encompassing a look at a lot of the New Testament to see what it says today, if you've seen the title, regarding the nature of the of the church. Uh, That that being said, I I don't think, even though it might be a little bit more implicit, I don't think it's any less biblical. And so today, if you'll just bear with me, I'm going to try to make this expedient and and not take a long time, but we are looking at at multiple passages of scripture. So if you're looking for a place to turn in the Bible to follow me today, I guess my response to you would be good luck. (laughs) No, we're going to start in the book of Acts chapter 2 It's a good place to start, it's it's where we've been, and in just a moment we'll be in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, and we'll go from there together. That being said, have you ever heard the story about the Baptist church that had a squirrel problem? Squirrel infestation had started just, just taking over. No, it's not the Ray Stevens talk song, the way the day the squirrel went berserk. Squirrels, more than one, were taking over the church. It had gotten so bad that they were, they were in the attic, that they'd even started making their way down into the, the church building itself. They were in the, in the worship center. They, they even, even made it to the kitchen. And so they began to, to try to figure out leadership in the church. What, what do we do about this squirrel infestation? Well, finally, one of the deacons had just an ingenious idea. He said, Pastor, I've been thinking about it, and I think I know the solution, or at least something that would help alleviate the problem. The pastor said, well, at this point, we'll try anything. What is it? And he said, I got an idea. Baptize them into membership, and that way we'll only have to see them and deal with them on Christmas and Easter. Now, now you obviously know that that is a joke, and, and there's a sense in which it's, it's funny, it's comical. But, you know, with every joke, they always say there's an element of truth. And the, and the commentary, the truthful commentary that this relays to us is, is somewhat concerning as we think of the state of the church and the membership of the church. Because it is communicating a very real sense about how sometimes, often, especially in the Baptist church, it's a tradition that I know, we operate in the realm of membership. Uh, but as we think about the church... Through the following description that D.A. Carson gives, I want to ask the question, should we be a little bit more serious or concerned about the membership that makes up the body than perhaps we are at times? Listen to what D.A. Carson wrote about the description of this body that we know as the church. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationalities, common accents. I'm a great example of that. You guys have adopted an Arkansan with an Arkansan accent into your body, common jobs or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The Bible describes the church this way, at least a few of the ways that it describes the church, metaphors that it uses for the church. The household of the living God. The body of Christ. And maybe even more significant for me, as a husband of a wife, the bride of Christ. So the question is, if that's the way that the church is formed and that's the way the Bible talks about the church, Specifically in the New Testament, should we not have a higher regard for the church and at least be more cautious as we think about membership? My answer to that question before we even look at the details of the sermon today would be definitively yes. So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at, at what I've called the nature of the church, and I think as we look at the nature of the church, as the New Testament fleshes out the nature of the church, I think we will naturally come to the answer of a very important question, a question that I believe all of us should be, should be asking and answering. And that question is essentially this, why join a church? And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at five parts of the nature of the church that I've pulled out. And again, I would tell you they're implicit but that doesn't make them any less true or any less clear. For I would say the doctrine of the Trinity and the concept of the inerrancy of Scripture aren't explicit in Scripture, but we know those things are essential for orthodox belief. And I would say so it is with this concept of the nature of the church. And so that being said, I want us to look at these five that you should have on your outline today. First of all, we look here in Acts chapter 2, and in just a moment I'll read verses 41 and 47. And maybe the most important thing that we should understand, number one, about the nature of the church is it is made up of only regenerate members. Uh, Look with me, if you would, at verses 41 and 47 of Acts chapter 2. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Focus specifically on this concept of those who had received his word. It's in reference to a, a positive response, a faith response to the gospel that Peter had just preached. But maybe even more explicitly, verse 47 says, Praising the Lord praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, adding to their number, the number of the church day by day, but specifically those who were being saved. And so by saying it is made up of only regenerate members, by that we're saying those that have truly been redeemed, those that are truly saved. Only, only those that have been truly saved can really be a member of a church. Now, is is that me saying that there's never any those that are not truly regenerate that don't make their way into the church? Well, of of course they are, but I always say it like this. To some extent, it doesn't matter who we vote on and who we put in the body. If they're not truly saved, they're not really a part of the body. They may be on our membership rolls, but they're not a part of the body. Only those who have responded in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to the gospel are those that can be and do make up a church or any church. The other thing that's really interesting in in the New Testament, and this is kind of a conceptual thought, it's implied again, but we would also say this, the New Testament also assumes of all the members of a church, all those that are saved, that they're also baptized believers. You look at, Verse 1, and you see this very concept working itself out. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, not verse 1. So then those who had received his word were baptized. So there's this concept, if you've received the word, if you've responded to the gospel, you are baptized. You will be baptized. But even a place, we don't have time to read this today, but even a place like Romans chapter chapter 6... Paul is assuming that everybody that's hearing his words read amongst the churches, plural, in Rome, that every one of them have been baptized. That there's not a one member of the Roman church or Roman churches that is hearing the word that hasn't been baptized. And so here's the interesting thing as we think about what is the church made up of. I think from a, a New Testament Idea, we have to say that it's those who are truly regenerate and those that have also showed themselves publicly regenerate. Right? It's those that have been redeemed, but also those that have been willing to go into the baptismal waters to make a public de- declaration of the regeneration that's happened in their life. So, a, a, a simple way to say what I'm saying here is the church is made up of baptized believers. That's what makes up the membership of a church. Uh, Secondly, it's gathered and local. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture in just a moment that illustrate this concept from the New Testament as well. The first that we'll look at is from Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 3. And so you might want to find your way there and hold your spot. And We will look at that in just a moment. But before we do... When we think about the gathered nature of the church, this concept doesn't so much come from one particular passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Rather, and I'm going to try not to get too technical, and I'll try to explain this as simply and as quickly as I can, but rather it comes from the word that's used multiple times all over the New Testament that is translated church. The concept of it being a gathered body. Now, some of you will know what this word word is, and some of you, this might be the first time hearing it, but it's the Greek word ekklesia. That's the word over and over and over again in the Bible that's translated church. It comes from two individual Greek words that are put together, ek, which we would spell ek, which means out, and kletos, which means called or invited. So what we've done a lot of times in the history of the church is we've just determined the definition for this word a meaning of this word by addition. We just add the two individual words together and and we think we know what this term means. And so ek, out, kletos called, it's the out called or the called out ones. Now, I am certainly not going to tell you today that the church is not made up of those who are called by God. It clearly is. And by called, we mean saved. It is Certainly assembled, it's an assembly, it's, a, it's, it's, its parts are made up of those who have been saved by God. But you can't always determine a word. Matter of fact, you rarely should determine a word's meaning by just adding the sum of its parts together and saying, there you have the definition. Let me give you some English equivalents of why that's not a good idea. If you practiced this with the English word butterfly, you would be in all kinds of problems trying to determine meaning by the sum of its two parts. Because a butterfly is not a fly made of butter, is it? You could do the same thing with the word pineapple. Now, if any of you have ever had a pineapple, you know that it's not some type of special kind of apple that tastes like a pine, is it? So you can't always determine word meaning and usage by adding its two parts together. As a matter of fact, that this word that's used, ekklesia, was a word that was used in the culture of the time of the New Testament and before, before the church had been founded in the book of Acts. What I'm telling you, the term for church in the New Testament predates the concept of church in the New Testament. So if we're trying to understand it to have some specifically sanctified definition in its original parts, we find some struggles to do that. Often words are best understood, best, best classified, best defined, not in the summation of their two parts, but in their usage and meaning, how they're used in context, in other words. And we can look in, 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 the, in the Bible and outside the Bible, and we can see how the term is used and quickly comes an understanding. It was a term that was used in normal society to mean, essentially, the assembly. And it was used of the secular world, not just the religious world, but the secular world. It was often used of legislative bodies that would come together for a time to do business. Uh, Technically, the the term in its its context in society and in Scripture is one that means a regularly assembled body, are those who casually come together or people that have a common set of beliefs, such as a family or a community. Essentially, voila, assembly. So what the New Testament does is the New Testament writers, Paul and even Jesus himself and and the other writers, take a commonly used secular word that means assembly, those who come together, and they redeem it. They sanctify it, and they use it in a very specific, precise way. They're not meaning just any assembly, are they? Not just any assembly as a church. No, how they're using it is specifically the assembly of the redeemed. A certain assembly. Those amongst the redeemed who assemble themselves. The church. So even by the usage of the word for church in the New Testament, we quickly understand implicit in this idea are people that join themselves together. Without some concept of being joined together, there is no concept of the word ecclesia relating to the church in the New Testament. Right There has to be some concept of assembling together that's behind this idea of the assembly of the redeemed, which leads me to the second point that I've made here. It's not just gathered, but it's gathered and local. We understand that the word church in the New Testament occasionally refers to the church universal. You're saved, you're already a part of the church. Why join a church? Well, let me tell you one reason why to join a church, because almost every time, and it's not... It's not It's not certainly all the time, but almost every time. The majority of the times the word ekklesia is used in the New Testament, the term that means church, it is used not of the church universal, but it's used of a specific local assembly. Almost every time, that's what it's used of. Sure, sometimes it's used to mean the church universal, but most of the time in the New Testament, it's talking about a specific local body, just like this one, that has assembled themselves together together, and does so regularly, that has joined their lives together. Let me illustrate this to you from Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 16. And again, we have some fun names here, so just bear with me. Greet Presca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Is that usage there talking about the church universal, or is it talking about some specific local assemblies? Specific local assemblies of the Gentiles. But watch this. Also greet the church that is in their house. Well, that's also a specific church, isn't it? Because it's the one that assembles, that is joined together in the house of Presca and Aquila. Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who is my, uh, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junus, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ Jesus before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stichus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristob- Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Isencritus, Philegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Again, a reference to a church that's with them. Greet Philogogos. Philologus and Julia, Neresus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Now watch this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So all the references there that's made to a church and all the actual use of the word church or churches there in Romans 16, is it talking about the church universal? Or is it talking about a specific local or specific local assemblies. Every time it's used there in Romans 16, it's not talking about the church universal. It's talking about specific local gatherings. And we see that in other places as well, like Philemon chapter one, verses one and two. If you want to turn there with me, you can. If not, you can just listen. Philemon chapter one, verses one and two listen, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, to Timothy, our brother, our brother, and to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. And then you look at a place like Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, which doesn't specifically use the word church, but the concept is certainly there. Listen, Paul and Timothy, bond service of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi. Not talking about the church universal, talking about a specific, excuse me, not talking about the church universal, talking about a specific local assembly. And such it is in other places that we see in the book of Acts that we've not gotten to yet. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we see that in the regularly gathering of a local body, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to a work, not out of the church universal, not to missionary church, not to missionary work out of the church universal, but out of the church local. Just listen. Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucis the Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The church universal didn't send them away. The church local sent them away. And then in a place like Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and following, you also see Paul calling the leaders of a local church, the local church in Ephesus to him for some final instruction. This in Acts twenty seventeen from Elias he sent to Ephesus and called him, to him the elders of the church and when they had come to them he said to them and there this discourse that he gives not leadership in the church universal but leadership in the church local finally it's it's really interesting we think about the church being the assembly. The assembly of the redeemed, and, and specifically what we see in the New Testament, it's the local assembly of the redeemed. It's a specific body that the New Testament is often talk, talking about, but when you look at a passage like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, you, you come to understand something else very, very interesting as well, and it's this. The church has to be what the church is in order to do what specifically the church has been commanded to do you're right pastor you shouldn't have been left with your kids by themselves because i have no idea what you mean by that Well, will just listen to hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 and i think you will not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you say, see the day drawing near do you know what you have and by the way I don't on this side of heaven. It is impossible to do what Hebrews ten twenty five commands that we do with the church universal. You can't do it. You cannot gather with the entire church universal. You can't do it. Not on this side of heaven. This is what I mean by this. What you have in in, in Hebrews ten twenty five is this. It's the assembled. It's the local assembled assembly of the redeemed. It's the assembling of the assembly. That's what we're doing right here this morning. We're assembling as the assembly, this specific assembly. And it's a thoroughly biblical concept. So I think what, just from what we've looked at as far as the definition of the term and the usage of the words here in the New Testament, I think we can come to a pretty safe conclusion that, that in the New Testament we understand that the church is a local assembled assembly of the redeemed but that's not all we see about the nature of the church we also see and this is maybe one where we start squirming a little bit it's not only that it's only made up of only regenerate members it's not only that it's gathered in local but it's also exclusive what in the world is he saying is he saying that there's some that we don't want to let in to our doors into our membership into our fellowship no, I'm not saying that at all. As a matter of fact, in, in just a moment, hold your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I have 1 Corinthians 5, I have Matthew 18. We won't look at Matthew 18 for time this morning, but we'll look at, at 1 Corinthians 5 and we'll look at 2 Corinthians 2.6. What I don't mean by the church being exclusive is this. I'm not saying that we arrogantly work to try to keep people out or that we're a respecter of persons. That's not what we're talking about. As a matter of fact, our action... What, what we do is we actively try to pursue people to get people in. That's our action is to get people in. But we, we must, even in that action, understand this. It goes back to the first point. There, there are some that aren't redeemed in this world, more than obviously we wish, and we know no matter what we do or what we tell them about their inclusion, if they're not redeemed, they're not in. So so we have to understand this. The church is for everyone, but not everyone is a member of this church or any church for that matter. Right? That's what we mean by it's exclusive. As a matter of fact, um, Mark Dever, pastor of a Southern Baptist church in Washington, D.C., says this. He says, the church is for sinners, but among sinners, only a certain kind, repenting, sinners. Right? Amen. Look, in the Bible, there is clearly a process for excluding people from the church. I know, I know we don't like to think about that, but there's a process for excluding people from the church. Matthew 18, Jesus's words himself. But for time today, look with me, if you would, at first Corinthians chapter five. And, and, and I, it's not a long chapter. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you and listen to this. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned and said so that the one who had had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For on my part, did you catch that? One who has done this would be removed from your midst. There's a process for Exclusion. For I on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, watch this. When you are assembled, I just beleaguered the concept of assembling with you before, so I hope you're connecting the dots as we read this in this passage of Scripture again. This is the local assembling assembled of the redeemed again, Right? It's not the church universal here. It's the church local here. When you've assembled, when you've come together, and I with you in the Spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, watch this. This is really good. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world. If you did that, you couldn't ever associate with anyone in the world and you couldn't share the gospel with anybody because they're all immoral because they don't have a Savior. Right? So he says, I'm not talking about them. Here's who I'm talking about. Or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But here's what he means. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother any any former church member, any, somebody that was once included in the church, if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idol, uh, idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourself. There is clearly in the New Testament a process for excluding from the church, isn't there? We can't read 1 Corinthians 5 and not see that. It's clear, isn't it? But watch this. In 2 Corinthians 2, 5, and 6, praise God, there's also a process after repentance to re-include someone. Now, I promise I'm going somewhere with all this. Don't lose me. Don't let me lose you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. But watch this. Some people believe what he's about to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, is, is his response to the fact that they did remove the guy, 1 Corinthians 5, from their midst, and he's repented. And now they're talking about the same guy putting him back in the church. Which, by the way, there's no way to know for sure. But man, if that is in fact who this is, what a tremendous picture of the gospel what membership should look like, and the grace of God in an individual's life and in the life of the whole body. Because we've talked about this before, and this isn't the point of this message, but church discipline, which we cringe at, is not for retribution or kicking someone out. It's to go into the volcano after them to keep them from falling in for the sake of their soul. Right? So, another sermon. I'm preaching another sermon here, but try not to do that. Verse 6, "...sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority." put him back in. He's had enough. He's repented and he's hurting. Now, now re-including in the church. So just, just follow me on this. I know this is implicit idea, but if in the New Testament, there's a process for excluding from the church and there's a process for re-including in the church, doesn't that, whether it explicitly says it or not, doesn't that indicate there must then be also a process for initial inclusion in the church? What I'm essentially telling you is there must be then a process for someone to join if there's a way for them to be kicked out. You can't kick out someone that's not in, right? So sometimes we think this concept of biblical membership, or membership is not a biblical concept. Brothers and sisters, I would tell you from a passage like that, it is. It's implied, it's implicit, but it's there. There's a process for being a member of a local assembly of the redeemed. Matter of fact, our friend Dever again said this: "It is a body in which you can be excluded, and therefore in which clearly, you can be included." And then he, went on to say, he goes on to say this. Listen, I, I think this is significant. He says, he says, "Consider this: If you cannot be excluded from the church you are currently worshiping at, maybe it's because you have not been included in the way the Bible intends. So all that to say this, as we look at this exclusive nature of the church, we have to come to an understanding. Even though it's implied, we come to the understanding of this. This concept of public membership, formally joining publicly a church, although implicit, is a New Testament concept. Fourthly, it's not only that it's only made up of regenerate members, it's gathered and local, it's exclusive, but it's also submitted and committed there are at least um two things that the body is commanded to do the body's commanded to do in regards to leadership in a congregation both of which to some degree is challenging if not impossible if there's not some type of recognized membership of that of that body one of them we find in places like Hebrews thirteen seventeen and first Peter five one through five. Look with me if you would at these two places. Again, keeping in this in your mind this concept of universal church versus local church, because this will play itself out here as well. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then look with me, if you would, at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Even the concept you're going to read here in a minute, among you, indicates some type of recognized membership. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elders and witnesses "...and witness of the suffering of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you." So which flock am I supposed to shepherd? One in New Zealand. No, the one among me, right? "...exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge." but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all, and all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So one of the things the church is com- commanded to do is, is to be submitted to their leaders and for leaders to give care to the souls of those that are under his or their charge, right? So so question I think we need to ask, and I think this is an important question for you, what leaders is God going to hold you responsible for submitting to? If he's going to hold you responsible for it, don't you want to know who that is? I would want to know. In other words, I don't want to get to heaven and, and, and Jesus to go, well, Adam, you didn't submit, submit very well to W.A. Criswell or Billy Graham. And I'm going to say, well, God, W.A. Criswell was dead by the time I came to a Christian almost, well, it doesn't matter. You're supposed to submit to all the leaders over you. Well, clearly that's ridiculous, and that not, that's not what God is talking about, is it? He's talking about specific leaders you're supposed to submit to, those that are leaders in your church that you are a member of. But I want to tell you something else from my side. I want to know who, who God's going to hold me responsible, who, who, whose souls God's going to hold me responsible for being over. Right? I want to know that. So, Ms. Kathy, I don't know. We might need to talk afterwards. Right? I, is God going to hold me as a pastor responsible for the souls of all Christians of all time? I, I can't manage that. I have not met most of them. Right? No, you've got to have some concept of membership, of submitting yourself to certain leaders, and leaders knowing who they're, they're responsible for. Right? Right? I mean, so this isn't isn't explicit, but it's implicit. The concept of, again, membership. Even if there's those that that nominally attend your church, you might say, well, you're responsible for them. The question is, how can I be? If they're only nominally attending, how can I truly know them? How can I know what their needs are and their struggles are unless they're saying, I'm in and I'm submitting myself to to know you, to know who you are, and to be led by you? See, I don't think God's going to hold me responsible for that person either because they've not submitted themselves to me. They've not given me charge over their soul, so I can't have responsibility over their soul. Pastors and parents, here's the thing that you need to understand. I don't know any other people that fit in quite this category. You you are responsible because you're given authority. You can't have the responsibility if you don't have the authority. Right? The only way you can be held responsible is if you've been given authority over it. And I think that that's what this reveals about the concept of at least knowing who's in, who's who's a part of your flock that you're responsible for, and therefore what leaders you submit yourself to. But there's a second thing. It's not just being submitted, but it's being committed. And we see this in in places like Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. Acts chapter 6. One, one through six, really, but you could even look at verse seven. But it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among, among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of wisdom, of whom we may put in charge of this task. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and in the, in the number of, of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And then First Timothy chapter 5 Chapter, um, chapter 5, verses 3 and following. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in, in, uh, in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents for this is sceptical in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties in, in, in and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasures is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his, ho- of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow, watch this, is to be put on the list or enrolled only if she is not less than 60 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. We can stop there because it makes the point. Again, the question is, who were the first deacons in Acts chapter 6? What widows specifically were they responsible for? All of the widows in the world? all of the widows in Jerusalem. I would even say no to that. Specifically, right? The church is called to be committed to helping special groups of people and, and ministering to them in a precise way. But you got to know who they are. And first Timothy chapter five says, enroll them. My question to you would be enroll them from what and onto what? Right? There's at least some concept that that membership roles or records in the early church were being kept so that they knew who they were responsible to care for. This doesn't mean you can't care for people outside the church, but it means you must care for those inside the church. And you have to know who they are. You know, thinking about this concept of... of, um, of some limited number of people that we're responsible for and some limited number of leaders that we submit to and some limited number of of people that I, as a leader, am responsible for. Uh, There was a Scottish pastor by the name of John Brown that wrote a letter to one of his protégés that had just been ordained over a church and, and a very small church at that. And illustrating this point well, I think it illustrates what we're talking about and why we need to know, if I can say it this way, who's in and who's out. For he wrote this, I know, by the way, I don't know that this is what we would want to hear about ourselves, but it makes the point. I know the vanity of your heart and that you feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself of the word of an on the word of an old man, that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. Right. Because of who we are responsible for. So, so again, the concept here is that there is clearly some idea in the New Testament of, of membership, knowing, knowing who you're responsible for and who you're responsible to. So, so these both of these things would be somewhat impossible if it weren't for at least some implied concept of membership in the New Testament. Finally, the fifth nature of the church that we see in the New Testament, it's made up of only regenerate members. It's gathered in local, it's exclusive, it's submitted and committed. Finally, it's a creation of and thus closely connected to Christ Himself. Amen. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Listen to this. In his discussion of marriage, here's what Paul writes Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her and then also in acts chapter 20 verse 28 here's what we read acts 20:28 20, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the holy spirit has made you an overseer to shepherd the church of god which he purchased with what his own blood I hope you understand and understand what I mean by this is the church is created by the substitutionary atoning work, the substitutionary atoning death of Christ on the cross. And as such, not just we, it's not just that we look at that and go, well, then we're closely related to Christ. But as such, Christ himself sees himself closely related to the church. So much so, so much so that we read an interesting dialogue that he has with Saul on the, on the road to Damascus, right? Read with me, if you would, in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Listen to what Jesus says about what Saul's doing and what it means in relationship to the church. He fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? So it's not just that the church sees itself intricately connected to Jesus, but because Jesus died for it and created it and is dying for it, Jesus sees himself intricately and intimately connected to it. So much so that when the church is persecuted, Jesus himself says, I'm persecuted. Jesus himself sees himself as persecuted. Now, now why is all of that important? How, what does it have anything to do with the nature of the church and of membership or, or anything like that? Well, I'm going to answer that question in just a moment from Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. But let me say it this way. It comes in an interesting application, if you will, of this concept of Jesus creating the church and being closely connected to it. How is it roughly 2,000 years after Jesus lived in the flesh, died, resurrected, and ascended, how is it that people today not hear the gospel so much but, but see the gospel and thus see the glory of God. It's not, it's not going to be through Jesus physically manifesting himself again, right? I mean, he's going to return and do that. He's going to do that. But, it, but on a regular basis, that's not practically how it happens. So, so how is the glory of God seen? How is it lived out? Well, Jesus creates the church. Jesus is closely connected to the church. Jesus empowers the church. Let me tell you how the glory of God is seen, lived out. It seemed that it's, it's, it's seen in, in, by, by being lived out in the life of local congregations. And Jesus says as much in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so thus the glory of God is shown by lives lived out in the church so so what does that have to do with membership in the church let me tell you if if that is in fact the case if 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 at least part of the way the father's glorified is by the lives of the saints lived out the lives of congregation lived out again isn't it important to have some type of formal public understanding for the sake of the church and for the sake of the world of who's in and who's out Say it another way. Do you want the world looking at just anybody and everybody and judging Christ and the church based on just anybody and everybody? No, it wouldn't be good, would it? Only those who are empowered by His Spirit. And by the way, sometimes us, not even then, but certainly no one that doesn't have the Spirit of God in Him needs to be representing Christ in such a way that the world will look and judge. So again, there needs to be some understanding of who's in and who's out. So as we look at these Five natures of the church, and I, I know we 've been in here together for for some time, and the, the hour's growing growing late. you said hour the hour and a half is growing late. I, I understand that, but I think it 's important maybe to connect the dots a little bit and go back to our original question You know what 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 should we think about the church what What should we do as far as, far as being cautious about membership in the church, from what we read, even implied about the church in the new testament well i think i think there 's A statement we make, and then there's at least four applications we can make from it. And the the statement is this. Being formally joined from everything we've just seen. Here's the conclusion. Being formally joined to a local body is a thoroughly biblical concept. It is. It just is. So from that, I think there's at least four four applications we can make. By the way, I was going to wait till a little bit later to say this, but I'm going to, I'm going to say this now. There's a lady that's it's been, and I'm, I'm not trying to embarrass her, but I don't think I would. I, think, I don't think she's embarrassable in this way. But there's a lady that came to see Pastor Stephen and I, this week, been attending our church for some time uh, and, and about joining our church formally. And uh, she said this week, she said, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm finally going to have to join because you keep guilting me into it. <laughs> the purpose of this message isn't, isn't, she's over there laughing, I'm not going to look at her. I'm not going to look at her because everyone's going to turn and look. I'm not to look. I'm not looking where she is, I promise. <laughs> Um, this pur- purpose of this sermon isn't to guilt anybody into anything. The purpose of every one of my sermons is not, is not to guilt anybody into any, any, anything or prove that I'm right and someone's wrong because I'm going to tell you most weeks when I'm in the, in, the, in the study, you know what I find? I don't find that you're wrong. I find that I'm wrong. And God preaches it to me before I ever preach it to you. And much repentance has to happen in my life before I can ever preach it. So this isn't, this isn't browbeating anyone. That's not the point of this. The point of this is to show us what, what God thinks and says about the church so that if you're desirous, you can submit your life. And I hope everyone here is desirous to do so. Submit your life and be right with the Father and under His authority. That's the purpose of this sermon. So let me say that before I go into these, these applications. That being said, here are the applications. Membership presumes several things at th- least three, people are not in unrepentant sin. Membership presumes that those that are a part of us aren't currently walking in unrepentant, an unrepentant lifestyle of sin. Because if so, the Bible tells us in several places how we have to handle that. So we're assuming, we're testifying with those that are part of this body that you're not walking in unrepentant sin currently. Now, whether you know it or not, you are testifying with, I think our rolls has almost 700. You are currently testifying... Whether you know it or not, biblically, with those 700 people that they're not currently walking in unrepented sin. And by the way, God's going to hold you and me responsible for that, just so you know. Secondly, they have been baptized. Right? We talked about that in Acts chapter 2 verse 41 and Romans chapter 6. Now, this is the one that goes back to the whole squirrel infestation. They are in regular attendance with a few particular exceptions such as, right, my wife, I'm going to give an excuse for my wife because you're going to say, Pastor, your wife's not here. It's a, it's a rare exception, okay? And trust me, I want that exception to absolutely be rare. Uh, secondly, this is where it starts hitting, I think. I, start, I think it starts hitting home with us. It starts hitting our heart. If you are a believer but not a member of a local body, find one and join it. If you profess to be a believer, find a body, brothers and sisters, even if it's not this one. If you can't submit to me as your pastor, you don't need to join here because that means I would have a hard time giving an answer for your soul and that wouldn't be good for anybody. So this isn't a plug for you to join this church. This is a plug for you to find a church that you can comfortably join and submit your life to. So if you claim to be a believer, if you profess to be a believer, find a body and join it if you're not a member. Thirdly, if you are not a member of a local body, excuse me, if you are a member of a local body, regularly attend the worship gathering of that church when the entire body gathers and the word is preached. If you claim to be a member of that body, join yourself to them in such a way that you're regularly gathering with them so that they know you and you know them. And y'all can testify with one another. And finally... And this may be where it hits home specifically for this church and just this church. And this is not me saying that it doesn't, but this is me saying that it must. Membership in this body. And by the way, maybe I'm saying this a little bit selfishly. Membership in it because I'm responsible for it because God's going to hold me responsible for it at least the time that I'm pastor here, right? Membership in this body should mean something, it's got to mean something. So, so let me ask, it's not on your sheet, but let me ask the opposite side of this. So from everything we've just seen in Scripture, if someone's name is on the roll here, they claim to be a believer and they're physically able to be here, but they're rarely or never here. Don't answer this out loud, but from what we just read, regardless of whether or not we put them on the roll, are they really biblically a member of this body? I told you not to answer. (laughs) Right? It's just we need to be thinking about those things. If we're going to submit ourselves to the rule and authority, not of Adam, but of Christ. It's his body. It's his bride. He takes it very seriously. I used this um, same illustration that I want to use this morning on a Sunday night. By the way, don't, if, 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 if you didn't like the sermon, don't blame me. You Blame uh, chairman of your deacons, Sean Tuttle. He's not here today. I can say that, I can say that about him. Because I preached this. We, we talked through this on Sunday nights in the summer. And he came to me and said, Adam, I appreciate you doing that. He said, but you're kind of preaching the choir. He said, you need to do it on a Sunday morning. So blame him. Don't blame me. He'll have something very precious waiting on him. Pastor Danny next week when he comes back, everybody be in line to fuss at him about my sermon today. Anyway, I use this same, this same metaphor, if you will. Of, I think that practically speaking illustrates this concept of why join a church? Why should I join a church? Why should I join my life to the body of a church? And, and here it is. It's the, it's the concept of marriage, right? So, so we might ask ourselves, why is it good or important to be formally, legally married? And some would say, and I think some have said today, that you can almost do everything by just cohabiting together that someone can do that's married without actually getting married right? Maybe there's few exceptions to that, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's getting with, with, with HIPAA laws and things like that. It's getting to when even you're married, you can't do those things. So there may be very few things that you can't do. I mean, you can, you can technically, I'm not saying it's good to do it, but you can, you can live together. You can share a bank account. You can buy your food together. You can share expenses. You can, uh, you can even have children. People do have children, right, without actually formally getting married. You can, you can do all of those things. So, so why formally get married? Maybe the answer would give us because it's right to get married. Now, I agree with you, we need to get married in the eyes of God and God's commanded. I agree with that as well and that's probably the best reason or, or maybe because it's more moral to do so. All of those things I agree with, but I would argue all of us when we get married, we, we get married. And by the way, the prime thing that's in our, on our mind when we get married is none of those things. Right now, y'all have, now nah, wait a minute, get your minds out of the gutter. I'm not talking about that either. But we do it because we're in love, don't we? We do it because we're in love and we're making a commitment that we want together to share our lives together. I would say there's another reason that's really good. So a public declaration. It's good to make a public declaration of your love for one another before your people. You're basically saying to them, you hold me accountable for my vows. Did you know that? It's probably lost its meaning in our culture, but you're saying that as well. Hold me accountable for my vows, your witnesses. We very rarely do that because we don't like people up in our business. But, uh, <laughs> but that's why we do it, right? See, I wasn't going to laugh until you all started laughing. The Arkansas came out in me there. Pastor Stephen can't even look at me. No, he just said he can't. But there's a second reason we do it that goes along those lines, right? Public declaration of our love for one another, but also this. It's because at least there's some type of process that we must go through that will keep us from just easily separating when we perceive in our mind at the moment, things aren't going like I want them to. I'm going to tell you something. I don't care what you think about human emotions. Sometimes we think human emotions just as important as what God says or what God's word says or how I feel about what God says is important as actually what he said. Let me tell you how bogus that is. Our human emotions, although they're good and God made them a part of us, they're faulty because we're faulty and they're a part of us. And I'm going to tell you right now, my wife's not here so I can tell you all this and you all don't tell her. If we were basing my wife and I, and this would be true of any marriage, and some of you are going to lie to your spouse because she's sitting next to you or he's sitting next to you, but you know it's true. If you were basing staying together just simply on how you feel all the time, you'd already been divorced long ago. Because at one time or another, one of you thought, I don't like this. This ain't working out for me. My emotions is telling me i got to get away from this person because they're driving me nuts. But we don't base it just on how we feel at the moment, do we? And you know why it's good that we're legally married? Because at least, right, if I feel like that and I begin to walk down in my mind the process of separating, I realize there's a more formal process that i got to go through. And even if I can get out of it, hopefully somewhere along the lines, cooler heads will prevail and I won't do it. Why formally join a church? Two common reasons that we see in the marriage metaphor. I would say you might can do all the things that you can do without joining a church. Or, or, and when you join church without joining a church, but I would say this, it is good for us to together commit our love together to Christ. Amen. It's good for us to do that amongst one another and amongst the world. But let me tell you something else. Brothers and sisters, it's also good that we formally join together so there's at least some recourse in my life and in your life that will keep me on the moment of sin, on the moment of pleasure, on the moment of my emotion from easily walking away from the church, my faith, and Christ. Yes. And if you're not formally joined, you don't have that safeguard in place. But if you're joined with the body, that safeguard is in place in your life. And it's for your good, and it's for my good. So, how should we end this message? You're thinking, I don't care, just end it. <laughs> Well, I think an appropriate way to do so would be this. I think if you're here today, you're not a member more than more than not being a member of this church or some other church, you're not a member of, of the universal church. Let's get back to that for a moment. I think a great way to end this message would be to, to give an explanation of the gospel, of the gospel that puts us into the church and that the church is founded on. What the church is here for and what it's here because of. If you're not a part of God's family, not just this church or any church, let me, I want you to understand this today. All of this basically comes down to the gospel it's so that we can rightly live the gospel together, and it's, and it's only the gospel that can redeem you and put you in a relationship with Christ. And here's what the Bible says about that. Here's what the Bible says about the gospel. Every one of us, everybody that's ever lived because of our willing sinfulness have separated ourselves from a holy God. It's as if because of our sin, we've thumbed our noses at him. And there's nothing we can do on our own to fix that problem, to bridge that gap, to be back in right relationship with him. But the great news is God, God does love us. And God does love his people. And God desires through the blood and foundation of Christ to form this thing that we've been talking about today called the church. And so he sent his son, God in the flesh, born of a virgin, Jesus Christ, to come and, and walk this earth and to live a perfect sinless life. The only, only person to ever do so to live the life that was required of all of us so that he, he did have the ability to go willingly to the cross and suffer in our place. He lived the life that was required of us that none of us could live and he died the death on the cross that all of us deserved. In substitution, substitutionary atonement is what we call that, substituting himself for us, he went to the cross and that's not the end of the story. He was physically dead. He was put in a tomb, but oh, friend, he didn't stay there. But three days later, he gloriously, triumphantly rose again to live forevermore, ultimately defeating sin and death so that all and anyone that would repent and place saving faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone would also have the promise of overcoming sin and death and inheriting eternal life before God the Father. Isn't that great news? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here today and you're not a part of this church, I want you to know this church, we believe that that's what what our church is founded on and we believe that's what the church is founding on. And we believe that's the only thing that gets you into the the, the church and our church. And so today, in just a moment, we're going to go into a time of response if god is pricking your heart or however god's pricking your heart this morning we want to give you an opportunity to respond not not to us or for us but to him and for him so i can ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes